Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, The Authority of the King. Our scripture is Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. So let's turn in our Bibles as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, The King Encounters Faith. In Matthew 17, Matthew tells of an account of a father who kneels before Jesus. He has an epileptic son who is suffering terribly, and he says, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. In the end, Jesus has a conversation with the disciples about faith. He tells them that if their faith is as a grain of mustard seed, they can move this mountain. Moving a mountain was a common metaphor in Jewish literature for doing what was seemingly impossible. A mountain presents us with an uncrossable barrier. See, on the other hand, a mustard seed was the smallest seed in a typical Jewish garden. And so, next to something that seems large, Jesus places something that seems small and insignificant. The faith of the disciples is weak and less than perfect, and that makes it seem insignificant. And from that, I have to wonder, how much faith is required? What if our faith is less than perfect? Or let me get practical. Right now, what are you asking of the Lord? How much faith is required? Do you believe that if only you had enough faith, you would receive what you asked for? Do you think that God will not respond to your need? We've been studying Matthew 8 to 10, which as we have noticed is chock full of miracles. Matthew, as we have seen, seems intent on presenting some of the deeds of Jesus in topical order. And and so he groups the miracles in three sets of three miracles each. But as we will see today, that third grouping of miracles actually contains four miracles. That's because Matthew presents us with a man who requests to have Jesus come and heal his daughter. And as Jesus is going, he performs another miracle on the way. But before we read the text, let's review. The first grouping of miracles, Jesus is seen to heal people who are on the fringes of society, a leper, then the servant of a Roman centurion, and then he seems to heal people in Capernaum regardless of their status. With this, Matthew shows the popularity of Jesus growing and all manner of people stepping forward who want to be his followers. Then the second grouping of miracles kind of ups the ante. Matthew now shows that Jesus has the power over creation, then over the unseen demonic realm, and finally, that he has the power of forgiveness, that he alone has the power to make a man right with God. And in this, Matthew wants us to see that the man doing these things is God in human flesh. And then before we transition between this second grouping of miracles and the last, Matthew gives us his own self-portrait. How it came about that as he witnessed a man who forgave sins, he himself became a follower of Jesus. And as we come to the last set of miracles, Matthew now moves from the compassion of Jesus in which he heals those on the fringes of society to the identity of Jesus as he showcases who it is that does these things to now the question of faith. What kind of response is Jesus looking for in those who come to him for help from their suffering? How much faith are they required to exhibit? So let's read our text, Matthew 9, 18 to 26. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. 
And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. You know, as I've said, the last four healing stories in Matthew are again packaged topically. See, at first glance, it appears they're not. Notice the first phrase in verse 18, while he was saying these things. See, that makes it sound like the events discussed here follow chronologically from what has just transpired. So in the last section, Jesus has called Matthew to follow him. Matthew quit his job as a tax collector. Then Matthew held a feast in his house, inviting tax collectors and sinners to come and hear Jesus. This created a controversy, and Jesus said that no one puts new wine into old wineskins. He was presenting something new. See, when Matthew says, while he was saying these things, he means that Jesus has been talking this kind of language repeatedly. Through his miracles, he has brought about the conversion of Matthew and many more like him. He was saying these things everywhere, and this was creating quite a stir. Is it really possible that new religious structures were needed, structures that would welcome Roman centurions and tax collectors like Matthew? While Jesus was saying these things, while he was opening the door to the most unlikely of all possible scenarios, a Messiah who would welcome those who had been demon-possessed and those who had practiced prostitution, while he was talking about these kinds of things. See, that's why Matthew can simply compile for us a, a list of miracles taken from different times in his life. But Matthew, since he's topically choosing the miracles he's writing about, why does he choose these last miracles, or for our discussion today, why does he choose to tell us about these two miracles, that is, about the ruler's son and the woman who has an issue of blood? Well, please notice the role of faith in Jesus' healing accounts. Up till now, even though Matthew has hinted at the role of faith, he has not made that his major concern. In Matthew 4.24, he said, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And so Matthew was merely pointing out what it is that Jesus could do. But of course, he's been hinting at the need for faith. That was especially seen in the account of the healing of the centurion's servant. But now, Matthew wants us to examine the matter of faith and of healing very closely. So let's look again at verse 18b. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, that's really an amazing request. This man is asking Jesus not just to heal his sick daughter, He's asking Jesus to heal his dead daughter. See, what I find fascinating is something we must not miss. See, we know that in a town called Nain, Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead while they were you know, carrying the, the body of the boy out to the graveside. It's a great way to interrupt the funeral. 
We also know that Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead after his body had been in the tomb for three days. And so we've heard the stories of Jesus raising the dead plenty of times, and we who are reading this know that Jesus can do exactly what the ruler asks. But here, we might miss the significance of this moment. You see, up to this point, that is, up to this moment, Jesus had not yet raised anyone from the dead. And as we know, dead is dead. It's, it is final. So I wonder, how did this man come to believe what he asked for? Lay your hand on her and she will live. Now, this account is also found both in Mark and in Luke. And as is normal, Matthew has the shortest account. His telling of this takes only seven verses. So, for instance, Mark has 13 verses. His telling is almost twice as long. And that's Matthew's normal pattern. He abridges the account. He doesn't tell us that the man's name is Jairus, nor that he first came when his daughter was sick, and then later, when she died, he renewed his request. He doesn't tell us that he was the synagogue official, meaning that he was one of the elders of the synagogue in Capernaum. Local synagogues all had a board of elders who had a number of responsibilities. This man was probably the chair of that board. The elders were to govern the life of the synagogue and to make sure that it was always on track. See, instead of telling us these details, Matthew just gets right to the point. We know from what we've already read in Matthew that the religious establishment was already beginning to turn its back on Jesus. And with that, Matthew sketches out just a few details. This man, he says, is a ruler. And that can only mean a religious man who also has political power in the community. And this man is a dead daughter. And one more thing. When we see him in Matthew's account, he's on his knees in front of Jesus. I mean, what in the world would make a man like this, who's honored in his community as a leader and whose community views Jesus with suspicion, what would make him get down on his knees, submit to Jesus and beg? He's desperate, but he also believes that Jesus can do something he's never heard of before, raise a dead daughter. That, my friends, is called faith. The church was created to be God's instrument to declare the gospel to a fallen world. In Dr. Neufeld's series, Lessons for the Church, discover more about the purposes of the church and how God has equipped His church for service. Lessons for the Church is our free CD resource this month to encourage and equip God's people. Request your copy or listen online, podcast, or download the Back to the Bible Canada mobile app. Making Bible teaching you can trust available is central to our mission, and it makes a difference. Rob wrote, Back to the Bible Canada has become even more of a blessing since I relocated. I have grown so much, and the ministry has been a lifeline during this time of transition. Thanks so much for your encouragement. As always, so grateful for your prayers and financial support that sustain this ministry. For more information or to request your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. We've encountered a desperate man. He's out of options. I mean... Who shall he go to? Pharisees? I think not. How about physicians? Well, actually, the girl's dead. 
Should he ask the synagogue to pray? Well, all that's left is to pray for comfort, but he finds none. And so against the goodwill of his synagogue and his fellow parishioners, he goes to Jesus. And because it's every parent's nightmare that they would stand at the graveside of their child, he has stopped caring about the things that he used to care about. His synagogue might turn against him, and he may lose his place of leadership, but does it matter anymore? There's more. Jesus makes his way to the ruler's house. Professional mourners are playing flutes and weeping loudly. All the signs of death are at hand. And Jesus looked at this crowd and he said, go away. I mean, go away. There's a funeral going on. And Jesus responds, you folks are out of order. That child is not dead. She's sleeping. I love what Bible teacher David Turner said about this. He said, Jesus is not denying the fact of her death. He's denying the finality of her death. For the first time ever, in the hearing of this ruler, Jesus is saying, death does not have the final word. I have the final word. And all the while, while the others laugh at him, the ruler remains quiet. He is already way out on a limb. He's burning every bridge of respectability, but he's out of options. He simply is left to trust in Jesus, and that trust was not misplaced. And then Jesus took the little body of the dead daughter by the hand, and she arose. What do you make of that? What do you make of this man's choice to turn against the prejudices of his community? I say he did well. In essence, what I think this man did was choose Jesus over the acceptance of his community, and that was the essence of his faith. This man decided that choosing the honor of his community was simply not a choice he valued anymore. Death had changed his perspective. Now, the second miracle story is, as we know, in the middle of the last one. While Jesus is going to the ruler's house, they're being followed by a crowd, and in that crowd is a woman who had been suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years. And that probably meant a, a chronic menstrual loss of blood, leaving her anemic. But that would also mean that she was ritually unclean. Mark tells us that she had endured much from many physicians, had spent all she had, was now penniless, and had only gotten worse. Luke, who is himself a doctor, states matters from his perspective. He says she could not be healed by anyone. Matthew, who keeps the story short, simply says that she's been suffering for 12 years. Now, here again, just like the synagogue ruler, she is also out of options. She spent the last 12 years exploring her options. And just like the synagogue ruler, she has some outstanding issues before she can approach Jesus. For the ruler, it meant standing against his own synagogue, and for the woman, a permanently unclean woman, she was asking Jesus to touch her, and that was not permitted. She was going against all the expectations that her society had over her. But like the synagogue ruler, she also has no other options. So she decides her one chance is simply to touch what our translation calls his garment. The Greek word here is exactly the same one that's used in Matthew 23, verse 5. And there, Jesus is condemning the Pharisees, and he says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. So the word is fringes. All Hebrew men had fringes on the four corners of their outer garments, and they were put there as reminders to obey the commands of God. And Jesus no doubt wore that very same kind of garment. 
And the point here is that she touches something that's a symbol of the promise that Jesus had made to be faithful to God's commands. She no doubt knew that he was a righteous man. His fringes were not hypocrisy. They were symbols of what he truly was. And she may have thought, I'm not righteous, but if I touch his righteousness, I will be made well. Now, in the ancient world, there was a superstitious idea about powerful men. People believed that their power might reside in either their hair or their saliva, even their clothing. And so it would not be unusual for her to believe that that one touch could bring her deliverance from her calamity. Again, remember that according to Leviticus 15, verses 19 to 33, her flow of blood made her unclean. And so we have to keep in mind what she was doing. It was not really acceptable. She was supposed to keep away from the healer, for to touch him meant that he would be unclean. Now, for just a moment, think about the similarity between this woman and Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Both of them were subject to social pressure to stay away from Jesus. And both were out of options, and both had reasons to simply accept their fate and go away. But they didn't. And in the case of the woman, Matthew tells a very brief story. Mark says that the very moment she touched Jesus, the flow of blood dried up, and she knew instantly in her body that she had been healed. And then says Mark, Jesus, on his way to the home of Jairus, says, who touched my garments? And the disciples are amazed because they know that there are many people in this crowd. They know he's being jostled, and they're amazed that he would notice one person when clearly there have been so many. But Mark tells us Jesus knew the minute she touched the fringe of his garment, that power went out of him. And he knew that the power of God had had flowed from him to someone. And so Jesus simply stopped and he looked around to find out who it was that touched him. And the woman knows she's been found out. She, an unclean woman who was not supposed to touch him, but he won't let her get away with secrecy. He demands to know who touched him. In effect, he exposes her and she, trembling, comes and tells the whole truth of what has occurred. Now, Matthew mentions none of that. And we have to ask why. You know, in the past, we have noted that not only does Matthew present us with an abbreviated account of most of Jesus' miracles, but he abbreviates them for a purpose. See, Matthew wants to make sure that that we don't get distracted from the one thing that he wants to communicate. Matthew wants us to hear Jesus saying, take heart, your faith has made you well. So for Matthew, this event is about that one moment. He wants us to know that this woman's faith in Jesus brought an end to 12 years of suffering. Now, making sure the reader comprehends that, Matthew moves on to the dead daughter of the synagogue ruler. Jesus is on the way, raise the dead girl. And when he arrives, the place is in commotion. See, in that culture, it was common for people to hire professional mourners. They'd play instruments, and they'd mourn, and they'd weep. And that's the scene that Jesus walks into. You know, for Jews, that was not an uncommon scene. It's how death was greeted in their community. But the ruler has brought Jesus to that scene, and Jesus confronts the mayhem and says, go away, and he tells them they're not needed. The girl is not dead but asleep, and he doesn't mean she's in a coma. He means that in her case, this death was merely an interlude to display his power to heal. You know, in an instant, the professional mourners turn from weeping to mocking, and Matthew wants us to make sure that we understand that, that the only person who believes Jesus is that synagogue ruler, and that's the entire point. 
Jesus sent the unbelievers away. He goes into the house and he takes her by the hand and and the girl arose. And those two stories of healing suddenly flow into one. In the case of the woman, everyone was touching Jesus, but she touched him in faith. And in the case of the synagogue ruler, everyone was saying, it's too late. Why bother the teacher anymore? But in both cases, they simply believed when no one else did. Now, look, the woman may have had her superstitions about touching powerful men's clothing. We don't know. And the synagogue ruler may have had to deal with all the prejudices against Jesus. I mean, after all, everyone in his community didn't like him. But these two people, the the woman and the man, in spite of their imperfect faith, out of desperation, simply believed. And that's what faith is. It is confidence in Jesus. It simply believes not on the basis of what others are saying and doing. It believes because of what Jesus is saying and doing. Faith is not about how perfect we are. It rather has confidence in how perfect Christ is. And that is our lesson. Praying in faith is not about how much faith you have. It's about confidence in how much power Christ has. See, faith is not a virtue we possess. It's a confidence in the virtue that he possesses. And Matthew wants us to know that that anyone who's confident in Jesus has Jesus as a resource in the time of trouble. And that's all that's being asked of us. Don't look at your faith. Look at his power. Ask yourself, can I trust him? John, I have to tell you, uh, one of my favorite stories is this woman and uh, reaching out and touching the hem of his garment, and it just inspires me. A great woman of faith. Uh, But I wonder, you know, sometimes we see these people of faith and they seem to have their prayers answered, but is it not true that there's people of great faith that sometimes their prayers aren't answered? Yeah, I think, Ben, that all of our prayers are answered when we trust in the power of Christ. Now, it is true that sometimes they're not answered in the way that we anticipated, and I know that's what you asked me. Uh, But I think we need to, therefore, settle this matter. Not only does Jesus have the power to do anything he wants, but he has also the wisdom to do that, which is in our long-term best interest. And so I think a part of faith is also resting in the not only the power of Jesus, but in his wisdom as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult at times because I, we can't see it from our perspective. And we wonder, I mean, how can I can't be healed like someone else was? And yet Jesus, in his wisdom, are, is treating us exactly as he knows would suit our situation best for his eternal outcome and for our long-term good. So I think faith includes the idea of wisdom as well. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Newfeld, Alafagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where 
Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.